Hi, everyone. Nice to see you. Um, I really appreciate the way everyone's led us so far, and I hope just to be able to add uh, something else to that that we've heard this morning. Uh, so I'll be talking about growth, um, not upwards or outwards, uh, but a growth like Adrienne reminded us, like in Romans 8, where Paul says, it's God's destiny for us to be conformed to the image of his son. So I've got four points. They're all basically the same, though, so hopefully that will aid you in remembering them. <clears throat> God grows us, and just, it's just that in different varieties. So firstly, God grows us. This is really about the vision, the grand vision that God has for us to not be like we are now, but he's got destiny for us. He's got eternal purpose in mind. Jesus called you to be a disciple, to be a follower. It's, not an, it's a non-intermittent way of life. That means every moment, every day, every hour, you're his disciple. It's not just a class that you can choose to turn up to every now and again. Jesus has called you to follow him. And that following him is good news for you, but it's also good news for the world. It's part of God's great big plan to renew the heavens and earth, to make it as he intended. Jesus called you. And the degree to which that call is responded to has consequences for eternity. Jesus has called you with a purpose and with a goal in mind. Not only that, but God has given us everything we need through his Holy Spirit to actually reach that goal. There was a, uh, one of the big problems in the Old Testament was the law was given and it pointed to this idea of perfection, this kind of ultimate calling that you were supposed to arrive at and live up to. But, and this, I think, is the basic point of a lot of Romans, that this, this pointing didn't actually come with any of the power that it needed to to help that transformation happen. The good news is that the new agreement we have with God, the covenant between his peop- uh, him and us, his people, is that he's given us his Holy Spirit. The Spirit does what just the law and the commandment couldn't do, and it enables us to become the fully mature image bearers made actually like Jesus, just to be like him. Two of the bits of the Bible that have really uh, stuck out for me, probably well, for a long time, was, there's one in first, uh, first chapter of Philippians where it says, he who has begun a good work in you will carry it on until it's complete. Amen. And in Hebrews 12, it says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. So these words completion and perfecter have at their core this idea of something reaching its intended goal to become truly us, the goal that the creator created you to be. So if you're here in this room or you're watching online, there's still something ahead of you, a version of mature you, a perfect you that is yet to be realized. I don't know what you think perfection looks like, no, it's all right. No, don't all tell at once. Um, our culture will always offer us a vision of what the good life looks like, its version of what it thinks perfection is. It might be images of wealth, images of consumption, being able to choose whatever you want, whenever you want it. It may just be an image of health. Everything is well. I'm fit, I'm healthy, I'm, I'm doing well. It may be status. It may be 
a career that's fulfilling. It may be social kudos and being uh, you know, well-respected. It may just be prioritizing the education or the intellect. All of these things held up as goals or idols, things to be pursued and chased after. Often when some of these things get stripped away, something more... Uh, or a broader perspective is achieved, something, something richer comes through. I was reading this week the story of a guy called Elliot Dallin, or Dolan, I don't know how to say his name, I'm afraid. He recently passed away, and he, he wrote a couple of articles in The Guardian about what he'd learned going through uh, the journey of a cancer that took him at a young age in his 30s. And he, he highlighted a few things. He's, he's high, I, he said, these are the things I'd like to leave behind. It's one is the importance of gratitude. I was surprised. One was be vulnerable and connect to others. Do something for others, he said. Protect the planet, and life is for enjoyment. Make, what of it, make of it what you can. So as approaching the end of life, being confronted with the kind of transitoriness of all the normal attachments of our culture, of wealth and education and consumption, something richer comes through for him. Another one was uh, uh, an Australian palliative care nurse called Bronnie Ware, she wrote a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. And it's things like regrets of prioritizing work and things like that, and of not being in touch with friends. So our culture offers us lots of things, of visions of the good life, and they get honed and refined into something really good when, when some of those things are stripped away. But there's still more. There's a Christian vision of the good life, of a life well-lived, of maturity, and it's not something we're free to just make up as we go along. It's something we're drawn into discerning as we look at Jesus, our perfect perfecter. And it has more to do with transformation than accumulation. It's a transformation of heart, soul, mind, and strength. A question we often ask ourselves, and despite what I say, it's actually sometimes a helpful one, is how is your spiritual life? It's a great way of indicating we want to know what's, what's really going on. The trouble, I guess the trouble is that we have one life, and I think what the liturgy and, uh, has really helped brought home again to me is it's got our whole life is the canvas upon which God wants to write his works. It's not just what we want to do on a Sunday morning, but he wants every aspect of our lives to be fully alive with the Spirit. As in step with the Spirit on a Sunday morning as we are on a Monday morning when you're trying to face the world of a pandemic. Or on a Friday in the pub. As alive in the Spirit on a Thursday with an essay crisis or Tuesday with kids that won't sleep or Wednesday's night shift. Which is lucky because the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit work everywhere. These, these fruit, they're the outward marks of an inward work of the Spirit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Our, as we heard earlier in the poem, our normal lives transformed to something greater. So if God grows us, like it says in Philippians 1, then I encourage you, like it says in Philippians 3, press on towards the goal to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. Take hold of that for which Jesus has called you.
So God grows us. Second point, God grows us. Um, God grows us when we hunt for him. If you've got a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 1. While you do that, I'll have a drink. Uh, We'll start reading from from verse 29 in Mark chapter 1. It says, As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who were ill and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he wouldn't let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. It's a great little story about Jesus and his disciples, just as they were beginning to get to know him, right at the beginning of the journey. They woke up, and Jesus is gone. Great night, the night before. Jesus is doing all kinds of great things. They wake up, Jesus is gone. Everyone starts hunting for Jesus. In the NRSV, it says, actually, that... Uh, his disciples went and hunted for him. They went to seek him out. And part of being a disciple, part of growing, and part of the way God causes growth in us is as disciples learning to hunt for him, getting to know best where to hunt for Jesus. So to be a disciple is one, one who is always growing in the likeness of the teacher, is to be committed to seeking his presence. How one way the church historically has mapped out the best places to look for Jesus were through things like the creeds. Each one was written with a distinct purpose and a context answering certain questions, but they act as signposts which say things like, it's, it's this way, it's not that way, or here be heresies. As I thought, I thought, if I had more time and I was a bit more creative, you could actually create a map with heresies in it. And um, maps of faith that can orient us and direct us in safe paths. They're not everything, but they give us an overview. And I encourage you, if you've never got to grips with some of the creeds, you've never familiarized yourself with some of those kind of foundations and outlines of the Christian faith, I encourage you to do that. Books, too, can point us to new wisdom. Um, I wanted to just, if if you're the reading type and you want to go on in this, I'd heartily recommend this book, Being Disciples by Rowan Williams. If you haven't read it, it's great, and it will do you good. Uh, in terms of things that other ones will do you good, this is good. How to Pray by Pete Gregg. Both of these books will, will feed you and will be part of hunting for Jesus. They will, they will help you grow. So books can point our minds and point us in the right direction. The goal is to fill our minds and our hearts train our whole vision to recognize the goal that we're destined for. Just like his disciples found him, Jesus can still be found in solitary places. 
He can still be found in prayer. He can be found in Holy Communion. He can be found here in the church. He can be found in the Bible. He can be found in singing or the active replacement of singing with something else. He can be found in the eyes and care of your brothers and sisters around you. But you may also find him in the company of sinners, standing with the poor and the lonely, alongside the sick, walking with widows in their pain. Go hunt for Jesus. All of these places, places you're likely to find him. And as I, gaze, as I trust, as we gaze on Jesus in scripture and in community, we'll find a richer picture than we're used to. Richer and probably scarier and fuller than we have till now. A wise woman once said, where there is love, there is a longing to be with. And I would add that where, where there is being with, love increases. So if God grows us, brothers and sisters, seek him out. Seek him out. Third point, have a guess what it is. Yes, that's right, it is. God grows us, and he grows us when we expect him to. So he grows us when we hunt for him. His plan is to grow us. He wants us to hunt for him, and he grows us when we expect him to as well. It's a call to discern, actually, the ways that God wants to grow you. We're called to fully reflect the life and character of Jesus. Called to be a holy temple together, a place for the Spirit to live 24-7. I don't know about you, but I feel like there's more than a couple of days' work required for me yet to reflect Jesus more fully. Does anyone know the old joke how do you eat an elephant? One bit at a time, yeah, exactly. That's the right way. If Jez was here today, he would have shouted out before all of you. So, Jez, if you're listening, I'm missing you here. How do you eat an elephant? One bit at a time. Sometimes it really helps to know where to start and which bit of an elephant to start with. A grand vision of God's transformation to us often needs a smaller vision, something to break it down to. So how do we discern where God would have us start? Where does God want to uh, grow us? Firstly, I'd suggest attentiveness. Attentiveness to you, to yourself, to what's going on inside. What our desires are and what our reactions to things are tell us about where we're heading. What we can do is we can, if we're go through the process, we can take a reaction to something, we can almost sort of take it outside ourselves, sit down next to God, put it in front of ourselves, and say, so God, what is, what is this? For example, I, I remember being at work, and someone said to me, oh, make sure you remember to do that thing. I was like, why are you, why are you telling me I know, what, I know my job. I know what it is. It's a very simple aspect of my job. I know perfectly well how to do it. I found in me, this, as soon as this person had told me, don't forget to do this, it evoked all sorts of pride and like, disgust at almost having been 
reminded of this thing. And just that one little thing made this reaction of pride and superiority come to the surface. I don't know what it might be for you. I, mean, I, I probably do, actually. It's probably driving in a car, because driving in cars does that kind of thing to most of us. You drive in a car, and it brings out the kind of aggressive, entitled, uh, stubborn side of you that yeah, some people are nodding or smiling behind a mask. But these kind of things, if we allow ourselves to look at that, whether it's happy or sad, whether it's, why, God, do I so enjoy watching test match cricket? Like, why is it? What is that in me that to take these things out and put them in front of us and say, so, God, what is this telling me about where my desires are focused? What is it telling me about the state of our soul? It will reveal something. It's God's way often of his putting his finger on you could be the prophetic words that we've heard this morning. Thanks so much to those that brought them. Maybe it was what Sally said about, you know, walking through mud, needing to hear the voice that calls you. It could be just recognizing your fears, your cravings, your memories. Whatever it is that comes to the surface, put it out in front of you. Look at it together with God and say, God, what would you have me do here? And if God has highlighted something to do, which bit of the elephant to hack into first, then don't hold back. Be ruthless with dealing with it. He can and we can, and it can be joyful to see these things done and dealt with. Uh, just to remind you that the, the Bible and Christian story is, calls for us to be ruthless with sin. Hebrews 12, after it said, Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, he says, you haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your battle with sin. So there's a kind of, (laughs) there's a deeper level of resistance. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. Sobering stuff. I thought I'd read just as an example of something that can broaden our horizons from books. This is a book by Thomas Akempis, written 600 years ago. And he says, <clears throat> How were some of the saints so perfect? It's because they strove with all their might to mortify in themselves all worldly desires and could this, thus cling to God in their inmost heart and offer themselves freely and wholly to him. But we are, too held, we are held too firmly by our passions and are too much concerned with the passing affairs of the world We seldom completely master a single fault and have little zeal for our daily progress. Therefore, we may remain spiritually cold or tepid. Um, Strong words, too. One thing I really appreciated in the worship was after we'd spoken to ourselves and spoken to our hands and tried to speak to our hips but then sat down because of the shame of it... um, (laughs) Is that we, after that, we said, okay, we've, we've called ourselves up, but then we, we sang out, I think it was Elizabeth that sang and said, oh, God, you're good and you're glorious. Often we spend a lot of time looking at ourselves and saying, get right, come on, let's do this. And there's a, there is a time for stirring ourselves and making ourselves walk in holiness. But there's also a time to not look too much at us, but look a bit more 
at him, keeping our eyes fixed on him, will help us walk free of these things. So growth, uh, being able to know which bit of the elephant to start with uh, is important. But we're, we're not great at doing it on our own. Honestly, uh, left alone, we, it just won't work very well. Um, what a blessing it is to be surrounded by brothers and sisters, to be able to call on pastors or personal pastors to say, what is it that God wants to do in me? How do I, how do, I do this? Spiritual directors or friends or small groups. If some of those things are not in your lives, just I would encourage you, make them part of your lives. If you're not currently having someone speak into your life, uh, do it. Get a hold of that. We, there's something that we can offer here at OCC. To be corrected by a brother or sister who loves you is one of the great privileges of the Christian life, even though it might feel terrible at the time. So the re- actually, the real answer to what is the best way to eat an elephant is obviously to invite all your friends around and crack on together with the elephant with other people who remind you that we're in this together. We're imperfect, but we're God's work in progress. More than that, we together are God's work in progress with the same need to change course sometimes as a church, to repent, to ensure that we all, in our journeys together, stick close to Jesus. So if God grows us when we expect him to, together with our brothers and sisters here, Identify where God has his finger on you. Also, be the voice of encouragement to someone else here today. Like Jenny said, let's go to the house of the Lord today. Come, let's, let's go this way. Together, church, let's, let's discern the ways we've missed the mark, individually and corporately, and enjoy the joy of repentance together. So God grows us. God grows us. <laughs> when we hunt for him. God grows us when we expect him to. And just for the sake of inconsistency, my final point is not the same. But it's something on how God grows us. And I just want to give you, leave you with two pictures, uh, which I think are a bit of a prophetic encouragement to us today on how to persist in the gazing upon God and how to continue our desires towards him. So two different but, I think, compatible pictures of how God grows us, and I think both important to have in mind. So the first one is from uh, evolutionary biology. Um, There's a well-supported idea, thanks, Jeremy, for assuring me it was, uh, called punctuated equilibrium. This is the idea that for... For ages and ages, things basically kind of carry on as they are. Mr. Snail stays roughly the same size shell over eons and eons. But then suddenly, something seems to happen, looked at by the fossil record, which means in like a blink of an eye, a literal million years of evolutionary time, so in the blink of an eye, something has happened, and this snail seems to grow from just micro-snail to massive snail. There's a growth that happens on this rapid time scale. And it's often driven by things like uh, an external 
change in the environment, things like a change in sea level, which leaves them in a different environment, or uh, they become an isolated population. There's some particular pressure to grow because of uh, enhanced predation or something. And then they remix with the wider population after some other change, and they're just so dominant that they take over, and it looks like that big snail emerged out of nowhere. So this idea of punctuated equilibrium sounds to me a bit like how life sometimes goes, that there's an ongoing, barely perceptible kind of change, and something, something might happen, and there's an acceleration, and there's uh, a growth. External pressures and change in circumstance can create for us an environment where there's an opportunity for us to develop, for God to grow us rapidly. As Adrienne reminded us this morning, adversity is an opportunity for transformation. Of course, it's just an opportunity. What you do with that, still, that's, that's still ongoing. That's the decision. And some of these things are forced upon us, which may not surprise us. It says in Hebrews 2 that Jesus was made perfect, this idea of coming to the goal of who he was intended to be through suffering. We may find the same. Maybe it's a health situation that's forced upon us, financial situation, or not, not so much in our context, but it, maybe it's persecution. Maybe it's the pandemic you've probably heard of. These things get forced upon us, and we have the chance of saying, well, God, can I grow in this? Some things we just choose in the general course of life. We move to a new city, we get a new job, start university. In that change of environment, there's a chance again for God to do something. Actually, some we enter into deliberately knowing that it is a means of God's grace for us. Maybe it's a period of fasting. Maybe it's deliberately embarking on some kind of training. There are training courses that we run here at OCC that maybe there's something that can spark that. Maybe it's entering into a new relationship, friendship, a marriage relationship, pastoral relationship. These things are means of God's grace to us today. I think God wants to highlight three things. If you find yourself right now in a moment of big change or pressure, God wants you to know that he wants you. If you're off to university, he wants you to know there's a great opportunity for all sorts of new growth, mind, heart, soul, and strength transformation for you. If you feel like you've been living in some kind of stasis, some kind of billions of years of being the same sized thing, spinning with the same issues, struggling with the same things, and God would say, how about consciously choosing something here that you know God can use to change you? Thirdly, I think God might say, how about being the means of grace for someone else? Take it upon yourself to pray for them. It says in Colossians about Epaphras wrestling in prayer for the church there until Christ was formed in them. So, punctuated equilibrium. Something comes along and grows us. Finally, I just want to end with a I'm so glad, glad for what Ruth shared about 
her prayer about biscuits, praying for a clear sky. Because I think praying is a bit like stargazing. It's a picture from astronomy. So to see the splendor of the skies outside, some things really help, like being outside. It has to be night time. You can't be looking at your phone. You have to be still. You have to let your eyes adjust. A quick glance up at the skies might be enough for you if you're an experienced sailor or navigator or dung beetle. Um, depending on where you live, you may have periods where you don't see the sun or moon or stars for days on end. But you know that they're there. There's so much there up there to see that a whole lifetime and the most powerful telescope on Earth will not exhaust the depths available. Prayer is a bit like stargazing. And in the gazing, we grow in familiarity with the constellations of God's faithfulness. We trace the regular movements of the planets, of God's ways. We see the hourly and the seasonal patterns of change, but know that his goodness remains. And sometimes, in the right place, with patience, our eyes will be lit with the magic of the momentary display of his shooting splendor. Our hearts charged with the power with which he can create something out of nothing. When we pray, we're gazing at the stars. We make a little more room for him in us. And we're made a little bit more fully us as he intended us. A little less clutter, a little more room for him. We might not measure it daily, but we're enlarged. God says, church, he wants to grow us. Look up. Fix your eyes on his wonders, daily and nightly. Make some space for him. God bless you.